You've heard these suggestions from us and you've heard them from Dr. Steven Seiler. Go slow to be fast. Build stamina. Don't overdo interval work. And take a rest when you're not at your best. But sometimes you still need to hear it from the horse's mouth. So in this third episode of the Steven Seiler podcast, Dr. Seiler brings in Esmond Ersgold, the coach of a top Norwegian cycling development team that has produced many riders for the world tour. Ersgold has spent years developing teenage boys and girls and U23 athletes and getting them to the highest level. In this conversation, I talk about everything from applying psychology to coaching, to how to identify talent, to robustness and the importance of endurance rides, to the need for rest, the value of two-a-days, and indoor training, to how to use training zones and exactly how much hit work athletes of this level do. You may not be surprised to hear that Gold's secret to developing these athletes isn't complex exercise prescriptions, but using a polarized approach. What may surprise you is how much their training actually looks like what the rest of us do. Some of Gold's athletes even have to figure out how to balance training, recovery, and raising children. So put on your best Norwegian thinking cap and let's make you fast. Hi, this is Jim Miller. I'm Chief of Sport Performance at USA Cycling. It's been a dream of mine to do more and help develop USA Cycling coaches. Our partnership with Fast Talk Labs means any current licensed USA Cycling coach can join Fast Talk Labs for free and get the craft of coaching with Joe Friel, a whole library of sports science content and networking opportunities with other experienced coaches. The craft of coaching with Joe Friel is an awesome opportunity for coaches to become better, more successful, and happier. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com. Hello, well, this is Steven Seiler, and I have the pleasure of kind of do my own little podcast business. And I have, in the last months, met a gentleman and worked with a man named Espen Ershold, who is a coach and a logistics guru and a psychological therapist and many things that you have to be when you're working with elite athletes. And he and I have met each other. We have spent time in a car. We've spent time talking in my office, hours and hours. We've spent time on WhatsApp. I guess we've communicated via about every channel you can right now in this digital age, plus the physical when it's been possible. And so I just learned so much from this interaction that I thought it would be great for us to have a a chat and record it. So welcome, Espen Ereschold. Thank you, Stephen. It's nice to to participate in in these discussions on the record and off the record, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been off the record for a while, but now we're on. So now you've you got to be careful what you say. Actually, you don't. I'm the one that ends up needing to be careful. But you are the coach or a, let's say a coach because there's a staff, but you also have a role as a kind of a lead research and development coordinator for this team called UNOX Professional Cycling Team based in Norway. And for our listeners, they know cycling. And so they know you've got this world tour echelon with 19 teams or so. I think it's 19. And then you have one level below, which is the pro. And Uno X is one of those since 2020, this year. Yeah. Well, this is the first year before we, we, we started up actually in 2017. And then our goal was to be like a team that filled the gap between the junior category and the leading continental team, which is like the third division team at the time. Here in Norway. Right? Yeah. Since then, it's grown a lot. And, and from, from last year, we, we were actually took the step from continental team and up to the pro-continental circus. So for the coming year, we will have a pro team and we also have a continental team that's more or less our development team. And uh, right. for 2022... We are also starting up with the women World Tour team. So then from, from next year or from 22, there will be actually three teams. Well, before we get into this team and, and the developmental role and, and really get into the, the specifics of, of the coaching process, which I think is what we want to talk about the most, I think that process is certainly colored by your background and our interactions are colored by that. And I guess some people would say that you don't, choose to become a coach, coaching chooses you. And it seems that that's in some ways has been your destiny (laughs) Uh, because you grew up in this cycling family. And so could you just walk us through how you got where you are today? Because you weren't always a coach, but it seemed like maybe you were always destined to be one. 
I actually grew up with a father who was a coach in the local club since mid-70s. I think the year I was born in 75, he, he actually started coaching. And up until then, he was like a cyclist himself. And then throughout the 80s and into the 90s, he, he, he was also the national team coach. Worked with a continental team that was locally based here. That what forced me into to cycling, but it made it really natural. And then I was a cyclist myself. And I was a cyclist until I, I, the end of the juniors. And then I got like a like a knee injury that I could probably work back from, but uh, I didn't have the motivation or other aspects of life. Like with the, with other things, caught me if you can say it that way. But I've always been interested in the, the human psyche. So after the high school and, and some studying in psychology, then I went to work in, in a mental hospital. worked there for about five, six years in psychiatric ward. And then I was asked to work in an institution where children or adolescents who couldn't live at home, where the government took care of them. I ended up running one of the institutions with yeah, five to six lessons and a staff of 25 people, maybe. So five or six children, 25 staff? Yeah. That's a pretty, uh, it must have been challenging children to work with. Yeah. Yeah, we had our days, but but they, they, it was also very giving because it's kind of, they, they live with their back up against the wall and, and, and they struggle with a lot of things. And if you can help them like step by step, as, as we think in the team, it gives a lot of motivation. So on the one hand, it was yeah, it was really hard at times, but it was also really rewarding to help people to, to get a grip of their lives. So I even met some some of the some of the adolescents like last week out walking with a child, and she come over to me and thanked me and yeah, thanks for the time that we we had together in the in the institution. So. That pace of the whole life. So, so oh, yeah, man. tough times, but uh, great rewards as well. And I tend to observe people from a distance. And I've observed when you know, I was with you at the national championships and, and we were in this competition bubble. And, you know, all the cyclists on the team were there. And you have specific responsibility for some of them, not all of them. And I would watch your conversations with them. And, and it's not hard to imagine that you pull some of that therapeutic aspect your way with the athletes i found it has to be influenced by some of that background oh yeah spot on Stephen. some people can consider it as a technique but for me it's a, it's a way of being and then that falls more naturally and, and then as you as we have discussed before it's, it's not about you being a coach but yeah, the coach profession chooses you and, and then you can be at the coaching for, for a longer term because it's a part of the way you are and the way you speak and the way you think and everything. Right. So, so then you can run on the passion. Yeah, but you, you alluded to the fact or the, the idea that, you know, you said you, you worked with obviously challenging people with mental illness, with different trauma in their lives and at the same time you're linking some of that experience to working with elite performers who yeah. certainly have often had very good background or their family life has been exceptional they've been supported and so forth but yet there's still something you can pull into that relationship what is the connection between this mental illness experience and then the elite performer i think the main thing if i should one is it's easier to take perspective. It's easier to go up in the helicopter and to, to look at today's session that prop some of the riders they cracked on a session, for instance. And mm. and then to putting into perspective and tell them that yeah, it was a shitty experience, but in, in the long term view it's it's not that important. Now we need to find the balance and and create a good starting point for, for the upcoming workouts. Or, or, or just to to think in long term, to make goals, to identify the things that we need to work on and also have the patience and still the urgency to do things about it that you can move on. Because you need, like in, in adolescence or even in mental illnesses, you need to be your own owner of your own project. And that's so different from an athlete. 
if you want to be the best that you can, you need to be in control. You need to take uh, the correct actions every day. And then you have to also cope with setbacks and, and, and so forth. And then also success. You need to you need to cope with the success as well. And there's a lot of mental things that you can poke into to be better. Right. Well, I really like that. Um, I mean, you used two words in the same sentence. One was patience and the other was urgency, which kind of those seem like, I don't know, opposites. But yet you're saying your athletes have to have some balance between those two. Yeah. That's that's a challenge. Yeah. I have a daughter and I, I find that really challenging. <laughs> yeah. And as a coach, there's also, if you have several athletes, there's always those who are patient enough, but they also the ones that are have too much urgency. So you also always need to balance by whom you speak to. So one is too patient and, and the other is too, uh, too urgent. And then you have, if you have these phone calls within three hours, then you're, yeah. You have some struggles yourself, then you need perspective. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so you're part psychologist and part therapist, and I think all coaches can relate to that. And another aspect of our relationship that I've found intriguing is that you're not trained as a scientist or a physiologist, but you seem to be very receptive to absorbing literature. You like to read articles and their latest research. You you work with some technology companies on behalf of the team. So where did all that come from? Curious. I'm, I'm too curious. I, I like to understand. I think it's it's like every human wants to understand what they have around them or, or what they want to deal with. And and if we do, I have this figure of a guy who, who looks at a black box and then there's the scientist and then there's the black box. And then at the other end is the adaptation or what you have reached. And then I saw a picture where a guy opened the box and wanted to look inside what happens in the black box. <laughs> and that was for me uh, quite appealing. I, I'm, I'm probably the guy who, who wants to understand. And the only way to understand is to read articles, to talk to scientists like yourself, Stephen, or the coaches, and especially the athletes. I heard of several podcasts talking about trying to understand or looking at the adaptations and outcomes and everything. Uh, but one of my mantras uh, and, and what I held, tried to hold my athletes accountable is to teach me stuff. Because some things in research papers you, you see results and you see correlations and everything but when, when you have top top athletes often the the number of persons is one or two or ten so then then you don't have too many to study on but then the right. the individual response and thoughts are for me especially important because mm-hmm. if it works on one person it, it doesn't mean that the modality of the intensity or the workouts is going to work uh, with another person but we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, I think, later in the... Yeah. Well, you and I are, you're the coach, I'm the scientist. But, you know, I often was frustrated in my early career because the scientists had a tendency to look down at the coaches and say, well, the coaches just have no clue. And I think the coaches probably said similar things about the scientists. <laughs> but, yeah. but what I find is that it's a continuum. And when you really get into things that coaches are systematic they use methods that look an awful lot like science at least at least the good ones do and then i think i know a good number of sports scientists that have their feet firmly planted in practice you know so i think you and i ride that fence between practice and theory you're a bit more you know you're firmly planted in the daily grind i'm a bit more theoretically whimsical you know thing but i think we're both close enough that we get, we're able to talk really well together. And I really appreciate that. I think, and I, and I guess part of my career has been all about trying to connect coaches and scientists. So it's been particularly nice to connect with you. Now you're working with this team that has a very clear mandate or a vision around talent development. So I use the term exploitation, you know, in a world tour team, that hires the top riders in the world, they wish to exploit their talents, I would say. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they need that visibility. 
Whereas you are in a development situation where you don't expect those athletes to be with you. If you're successful, they're going to move on. Every rider in, in our team have like a world tour clause in their contract. So if they are approached and they want to, to go to world tour team, they are free to go, even though they are within a contract year. Right. That says a lot about the team and the goals, you know. Yeah. But I want us to start unpacking that because, you know, most of the people that are listening are not world tour level. They are different levels of cycling that they may have dreamed of going up to some continental team or some club team. But most of us will never conceive of the world tour level. But many of us have thought about what it is to be a little bit talented or to try to develop our talent wherever we are to move from where we are to where we wish to be. And so you work with this every day. And I guess the starting point is you try to identify talents. And I'm putting that term in quotes. So what, when do they come on your radar? What, what do you look for? And when? Age-wise, you know. Always a small country. And, and, and of course, we have our contacts. And, and one of the coaches in the team is also a coach in a top school in Norway. And his colleagues... They scout people from 14, 15, 16, actually starting training them before they go into the high school or the top school. And maybe we need to back up and say, what is a top school? Because we don't have school sport in Norway in the traditional the American sense or maybe the Canadian or British sense. But we do have these schools where at least some of the students are athletes and they have earned a place in the school based on athletic performance. And then they're allowed special training considerations, time, and so forth. So it's a different system than what we see in the U.S. We in terms of school sport, but it does give these coaches you're talking about a, a place to identify talents. Yeah, and also there's not many of them. So other aspects is them leaving from another part of the country at the age of 16 to live alone uh, or together with, with a, a classmate, stay there for three years. And then how they cope with everything, not only the cycling and the, the, the physical capabilities, but also living alone, making food, keeping the apartment clean, etc., etc. Because in our team, we have also um, a cooperation with the, with the foundation called uh, Courage or Moot in Norwegian. And that organization emphasizes a lot of for you to speak out, to, to tell them what they think and to, be, to, to show courage. And... These are also really important things for us. In our organization, we would like to have to create robust persons or humans. So if you're going to be a really good cyclist, that's great. But the most important thing is to create robust humans. And we think at the other end that create, having a robust human or people who dare to speak out for themselves and speak their mind, they will also be the best cyclists. So... On the other hand, it goes hand in hand. But we, we are very aware of our riders are also going to live after cycling. They're not going to be cyclists for their whole life. We would like to participate in, in creating them as a whole human. Right. So that's also a, a really big thing in our organization. Yeah, so physiology is one thing, and we can measure power and their FTP and that. But it's interesting that, that you bring up this idea. My daughter was at one of these sports schools, and yeah. yeah. You know, they have to grow up pretty darn fast when they're 15 years old, 16 years old, and suddenly move away, and they've got to make their own dinner every night and get up themselves and be at school at 8 o'clock. And so you're saying that alone is kind of a proving ground for whether they are potentially going to be able to do the, make this transition as a cyclist because it's, it's lonely, I guess. And also, it helps. I don't say you need to move away at 16. To, to prove yourself, but no. those who can cope with it and function socially as well as on the bike, I think they, they could reach further than those who can't. If you have read the All Blacks uh, legacy, one of the tenets there is uh, no dickheads and uh, swipe the shed <laughs> because we have to function as a team. Yeah. So if you, if you do your thing, uh, clean up after yourself, be polite, say hello to new people. Bring everyone else into the team when the new when we have new riders. It's especially responsibility for for the other riders to welcome them into the group. 
So, so then that's, that's really important for us. And it's a big team. I think your current group is what the pro group is 25, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. 25 riders, mostly from Norway, but perhaps four or so from Denmark. Seven Danes and 18 Norwegians. Now seven. Okay. Yeah. And if I recall, three of these are world record holders from the Danish pursuit team. Yeah, uh, that's true. So they're high-level athletes, even though they're young. And then you have this broad range. You've got different kinds of riders. And and one of the things the other day, you sent me a, a screenshot of a whiteboard that you where you're kind of working through some issues planning a training camp yeah. in Mallorca, where you're going to have all the riders down there. And one of the terms that was on the board was phenotype. Yeah. Which, you know, those of us who've had a little bit of science, we've heard of genotypes and phenotypes. And genotypes is just your genetic code and phenotypes is the expression of that. But basically you're saying, hey, I've got different kinds of riders on my team. And then, you know, maybe you can unpack that. What are your basic groupings that you think about when you say phenotype? The starting point of it is from where I live, we have a tradition of creating sprinters Great guys who are good in criteriums, for instance. Christoph is one of the riders from our region, but we have also a lot of other good sprinters. And if you look at the east part of the of the country, uh, Lillehammer, where the Olympics were in 94, they have time trialists, typical climbers, always graded. And, then, and we have seen when we put all those together in a, a larger group in training camps, then some riders would call with all the workouts, but others will need to have a rest. And then from when we were a smaller team, we were like 16 riders. So then it was not that easy to, to divide them up, yeah, large enough size groups. And But now when we are 25 riders from the pro cycling team and also 10 additional riders from the uh, development team, then we have 35 riders. So then we need to divide them up. Listeners, it's Dee Dee Barry and Julia, and we've been hard at work creating a new podcast featuring content for female endurance athletes and coaches of female endurance athletes. We're thrilled to announce an upcoming series from Fast Talk, Fast Talk Femme Podcast. Join the Fast Talk Labs newsletter for more information. All right, so phenotype they bring to the table differences in fiber type and you know some of them are fast twitchers and they're sprint types and some of them are these diesel motors and and you know that's kind of the phenotype aspect of it and then you threw in another term robustness they have different degrees of robustness unpack that for us what are you what are you talking about and is it trainable we think it's trainable. It's from the expression that you use in your software, the durability. For yeah. instance, if we take an example, uh, if you do a four-hour ride in 200 watts, then for a guy who has been training for a lot of years and have a, have a long background with training, and it is, it's used to the, to the economy of pedaling, then maybe we can see there's no drift in his heart rate on the 200 watts of uh, air resistance. But other, other guys who have been doing a lot of work aerobically, like VO2 threshold work, but they haven't done those long endurance miles, they will probably have a drift in heart rate after two, maybe three hours. And then, then there will be extra stress on the system. And then they will not be as robust as the other ones. We, we, have, we have this rider in our team who did, you remember the numbers, uh, Stephen, with the Swift... 12 hours, 54 uh, something. 13 hours to 230 yeah. watts. Unbelievable. Yeah, and no drift. Yeah. So he, he's robust. He's a diesel motor, yeah. But he doesn't, there are other tools he doesn't have. And, and that's the whole beauty of cycling is, is he's not going to be the guy that's going to win the sprint finish, the 13-hour diesel guy. But you've got some guys on the team, including now people on the team that have been up at the World Tour and have actually come back. To your team. Yeah. And it seems that at least in, in maybe one or two of the cases, it has to do with this robustness issue. That's our thinking. And that's it's so easy for them when they do intervals to dig in to the anaerobic power mm. with almost them not knowing. And in addition, they are sprinters. 
So they all have all the, also this mentality to dig deep. But when they dig deep, our perception is that they they train other systems, so they are not probably not be as robust because the higher the higher the intensity is, the more fatigue you are, the more recovery you need, and then you can't train enough regularly because you have these ups and downs. And and from that training data, it's for me it's. It looks quite obvious. I don't know if it's because I'm looking for it and I made up my mind or, or if it's if it's really like this. But this year we have been doing some adjustments in, in, in the, the base period. And uh, up until now, it looks really good, actually. Like we discussed even earlier, it's like one of the main things in the, the base period is that we use three workouts per week uh, with intensity around threshold. Now we have moved the microcyclers up to nine days and do the same three days of intensity sessions. We get an extra day for two for two of the intensity sessions. Some air in the program, I guess. Yeah, and then, then, you, then you end up with continuity. Hmm. And another big thing also, which probably has nothing much to do with this, but we also try to be meticulous with the training zones. So... If you look at the training zone that goes from A to B, we try to, to stay in the middle. And if you have a good day, that day we try to increase the amount or the time in zone instead of the intensity in the zone. Mm. So then we, we push to get a, a bigger foundation, not to train in with a higher intensity. Yeah, I love that. And well, and I, you know, I think in terms of this staircase idea of either intensify or extend, you know, you're either, you can either add minutes to intervals to rides or you can occasionally bump up the intensity but often we kind of tend to go to the intensification choice too quickly and it seems like it particularly in the cycling at the level your athletes are cycling where the races are so long that they really have to have the robustness they can't hide if they don't have it i mean they will be revealed my perception is also that there's a lot of master cyclists that have the intensity in the first hour or the second hour. But when mm-hmm. it cracks up with the fourth or the fifth hour, then they are home or gone. <laughs> that, that, that's, the, that's the big difference between the master cyclists and, and, and the elite. They can repeat it further out in, in the same session or, or race or whatever. And, and now tell me, the listener is probably saying, okay, well, how do I train that? Obviously, one aspect is just to do the longer rides, to get the hours in the saddle. But would you also recommend to Masters athletes that they, for example, do some high-intensity work after three hours in the saddle? In other words, you know, try to do this hybrid workout where they first drain the tank a bit and then do the intervals. Is that a good strategy? Yeah, we use it. Uh, but then you also have to take into consideration that when you do the intervals, you're more fatigued. So mm-hmm. you should adjust the intensity accordingly and also take into consideration that you need to recover because for master cyclists, life is also happening with kids and jobs and everything. Another way we, we do it as a kind of a uh, trick is that we, we sometimes put the high intensity workout at the start of a longer session to glycogen deplete and, and, and to deplete your carbohydrates and then go really easy, slow to train on the, the fat instead and then to get more trained on getting your fuel or your energy from the fat resources. But then you really go need to go really easy. So it's so easy to go over again and, and and to rely on the carbohydrates. All right. Well, you use the term easy here, and everything's relative. You've got riders that have, I mean, the better riders, the best are having FTP of 400 watts. Yeah, 450. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you showed me data from one of your athletes that did five times 15 minutes at first 360, then 380, then 400, 400, 400. So three times 15 minutes at 400 watts. Blood lactate, two point something, two, three, four. Yeah. Which, you know, most of us can't relate to. <laughs> so for that athlete, what's easy? 
what's an easy three hour power or four hour power for that? Yeah, 192, 200 watts. Yeah. That's easy. So 50%, 48, 50% of yeah. his 60 minute or at least 40, 50 minute power. And then this is also depending on depletion of the carbohydrate that the glycogen uh, source sure. before. And then, then we most likely do probably about somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes at CP5, maybe, in different modalities. Yeah, so five-minute power. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So it's and that's a robustness and a high-intensity repeatability that most athletes cannot relate to but it's a long-term process these uh, these riders that you're working with have already been training rigorously for what are we talking uh, most of them are between the pro team are between 21 and 24 mostly 25 somewhere in there yeah they, they, i think the oldest one is 20, 27 next year actually or 26 next year actually yeah so they've all got 10 years under yeah. the belt and it's yeah. important. And, and do, do also doing different sports in a lesson years like skiing, running, football, handball, yeah, whatever was popular where they lived. Right. And so I guess because that's where that urgency versus patience comes in because, you know, it's easy to think, oh, man, my threshold is 320 and I need it to be 380. <laughs> well, that's a pretty damn big jump. Uh, yeah. And it's not going to happen in one season. And, and I guess you know, how do you, what's the time frame, and, and, and maybe even masters can learn from that, the, the patience aspect of it. Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb is that the lower the wattage or the power, the longer it takes to develop. So it's easy to develop sprint power or around threshold or 30 seconds or, or that, that comes fast and goes fast away. But yeah. the foundation work that yeah, creator, yeah, yeah, do for quite some time. But I also think that one of the main things that we are talking about is that um, when we expose the riders for workouts, they have to be in in balance. So if you, if you imagine that you're, you have a battery at 100% and you, you go to do a session, then it's probably it's not easy if it's a hard session, it's still hard. But then if, if you start the morning with uh, low sleep and uh, kids who have been crying all night, which I actually have riders on the team that has kids, and sometimes the sleep quality is not good enough. So then we have need to have uh, made a suggestion to, to what the plan is. Because there's no plan that's so important that if you feel, feel bad today that you should just do it to do it. So if your battery is at 80%, then there, was all, then there will also be a relative effect. So it's, it's, it's all about adjusting to where you are at any given time and, and, and progress you will, you will see more over weeks and months than from a day-to-day basis. Well, yeah, and oh man, there's, there's no athlete that doesn't relate to this, to the things you're talking about now, which is that life happens and there's day-to-day stressors. So when that athlete is scheduled to do a a workout, a hard session, but everything tells you that they're not ready for it or they're not, they're compromised at some level, whether it's they're 80% of a hundred, you know. So what is your typical rule of thumb? Is it better for them to do a, a reduced version of that hard workout? Or do you say, no, we just go easy today. Or do you give them a rest day? I mean, on that continuum, how do you solve that adjustment? issue. Now I'm going to start by saying what you research guys says, so you're scientists. It depends. It depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but, but it, it really does. I think you have to look at the courses and you have to look at the total volume that you had coming up to the session. You have to do, figure out, is there any illnesses upcoming? And you have to look at the days to come. But most of the time, I'm just saying, uh, take a day off, enjoy it. You're not go- you're not going to get many of those, and to like mm-hmm. reduce the like the mental stress of not having done a workout. And and if you, as you taught me, if you're going to have a five percent increase during a half a year or a year, how much better do you need to be in each workout? That's not much. I think it's. Yeah. Um, we don't need to have a lot of those workouts, but if they happen, uh, 
yeah, sell them, then it's okay. If not, we have to look at the training program, the practice of uh, activities of the daily life, sleep, nutrition, are there any quarrels with their spouses, any problems with children, et cetera, et cetera. Because you have the training stress, and then you also have the cognitive stress. And it's the sum of those who creates the total stress. And if you have a lot of bad things on your mind or something that you worry about, then you will go throughout the day and the night and everything to reduce yourself. So your battery is maybe at 60%. Mm. Then it's maybe, maybe it's best thing is to, to go to and do something you like and forget about the training. Be with your friends, go see a movie, <laughs> go to a pub or whatever. But it's remarkable, even though a lot of our athletes that we work with will train 500 times in a, in a year, 600 some of them in, in some sports, they will be so afraid of taking a day off. How do you manage that fear, the fear of, you know, that I'm missing something that someone else that I'm competing against is getting because they're not taking this day off? That's a good question. I think I think some of the times I just say maybe it's my fault because I put, put, put the training program that's too ambitious. And then uh, and other times uh, the course is quite clear. It's back to, to just putting things into perspective. If we have a workout or a training session that, that's going to be planned to increase your VO2 max, then we know you need to be have a status of being being a, like a, also in a state of mind could dig dig deep enough because those sessions are really hard. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we use a lot is we use Borg scale. So, for instance, uh, if I can take a, a VO two max session, then I say with the first first interval, then you should probably reach fifteen on Borg scale, which is hard. It, you know, if I'm reminding people that the verbal yeah. word will be hard. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then by the end of the session, after you finish the last one, it should be really hard or eighteen. Yeah. If we do, if we do subtraction work, then we start at twelve, which is kind of somewhat easy. And then we end up at fifteen, which is hard. Mm. Mm. And then we look at the heart rate, and then we look at the power. And 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 as I was also was saying before, it's it's not about creating training plans or workouts that they just do as robots. They need to participate. They need to learn me if my plans are good enough. So then there's this discussion and this uh, back and forth is really important for me as a coach. Then you also can pick up the the individual preferences, for instance. One rider might like to go ELAT workouts on VO2max training. Others like 30-15s. And yet others, they go five by five minutes. And for me, I know that some workouts work better than others, but not if the athlete hasn't bought into it because they need the ownership. They they train somewhere between 800 and 1,200 hours a year. And then if they don't participate and own their own project about being the best they could be, then uh, they're doing for me or for the team. They need to do it for themselves and then bring it into the team. Mm. It's the reverse. So just giving, you know, I've listened to some others. I found it myself is giving a, an athlete some flexibility in the prescription saying, well, I need you to accumulate this many minutes at a, you know, 90%, but you can do it as four times eight minutes, or you can do it as six, you know, eight times four minutes. Yeah. Do you do that? Do you kind of yeah. let them maneuver in, in within a window? Yeah, I can do like... Okay, we're going to do four or five hours easy endurance. But within the four or five hours, I like to have, let's say, 90 minutes of sweet spot work. And then I would like, if you can do half of the time climbing and half of the time flat. Mm. And uh, if you can't keep it within the third and fourth hour or the second and third hour, because then they also can choose their route. A side effect of that is that they also need to plan and to like get their minds into where they're going to do things and but then they also more prepared and that this is also like a, a thing that's really good when they are actually on the road competing so to get your mind to think about the different things but also to set a rider in a position instead of going up and down the same hill 
all the time. Because mm. then you also get cognitive stronger. They're more cognitively flexible, I guess. And that yeah. that's a very different, you know, racing and cycling. There are more degrees of freedom than there are in a 10,000 meter on the track yeah. or, or a rower 2,000 meters. So it's an interesting you know, the degree of rigidity, the degree of, what should we say, the structure of interval sessions or things like that, or rowing for running seem to be much more square wave type affairs than what you're describing in cycling. I think it also has a lot to do with the motivation because then you participate yourself. But, but I also yeah. have really structured workouts on the, on, on the trainer. Okay. So it's not... Either or, it's just a mix. Yeah, well, and let's let's talk about that because I was thinking of asking you, you know, the cross-country skiing, running, rowing, we would see as the athlete progresses towards elite status, a lot of doubles. They start moving towards, they do more twice a day session or two sessions a day, two yeah. endurance sessions but or a strength and an endurance session. But the cycling traditionally has done the one longer session. What is happening and, and what are your reflections on that? Are your team, are your athletes starting to do more doubles or more, you know, shorter two, two times two hours versus one times four kinds of workouts? For me as a coach, the idea appeals to me. But when I talk to the riders, it's not that appealing to them. And I think a lot of it has to do with like uh, where we live. We live in Norway. When you have, when you go out on a bike, you need to have three layers of clothes. You need to wash your bike. So, so there's a lot of add-ons. It's not like you're wearing a cycling short and a, and a cycling shirt, and then you're off to off you go. There's, there's a lot of extra things. So, so I have met actually some resistance uh, when I have. Talked about an ID to my riders, yeah, and then back to them owning the project. Uh, I haven't haven't pushed it through yet. I have tried mm. with some, but uh, yeah, we haven't reached a, a conclusion yet. But we do endurance rides and straight workout later in the evening, so we have some double sessions. But we haven't done double sessions on the bike. Mm. But I think it's intriguing, and uh, yeah. Well, and this year, the, because of the conditions, because of some of the constraints, there is at least a lot of riders have had to shift indoors and yeah. do more training indoors. Have you seen that to be positive, negative, neutral? I think we, we have done it for, it's, it's kind of a tradition with having snow outside us. Mm. So we have done a lot of work inside. From my perspective, I think to have it in such a controlled manner, it's, it's a really positive. But there's also a mental side of it that they, you have to cope with sitting indoor. And then for some riders, they they like to train intervals outside in a blizzard before they go inside. So, so that's, that's yeah, it's more up to them if we can get the quality right. But I should say that you know the UCI had the first e-cycling championships. Uh, what was it last week? Yeah, the ninth. So not too long ago. And I believe I'm correct in saying that there was a, a Uno X rider in the top 10, and he was one of, what was it, a two World Tour riders that were in the top 10? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's correct. Jonas Iwasby, we divide his name. He's the current European champion for the under 23. Yeah, so you've got at least some riders that have managed, they, they seem to do pretty well on Zwift, uh, whether it's 13 hours at 230 yeah. watts or uh, these the new world championships. So, You've got everything from the people who say, I will not go on Zwift before it's a blizzard to those who are actually competing at the highest levels on the indoor modality. So that's pretty fun. Yeah. This technical side of you, you're familiar with all the latest technologies. You're interested where I know the team is working with some different technology companies related to EMG, to muscle oxygen, to sleep quantification, you know, different tools. So I, I guess I want to ask you, I think you kind of told me already, but what are your go-to tools right now in the daily work of monitoring your athletes? What are the top three, the three numbers or measurements or types of feedback that you really look to the most right now? Subjective feeling is, is 
Number one, how they actually feel. As we talked about, are they in balance? We also use the inside testing apparatus where we can say something about the training zones. And we use, uh, I especially use the WKO in training peaks to get guesstimates. I I don't follow it strictly. It's like a range and an outset together with the inside. What do you get from the WKO? The power duration curve? Yeah. So, yeah. so th- then you can get uh, approximately how hard for how long. And then you can look at different systems of what you're going to inflict or to improve. Uh, and then, as I said before, we'd like to extend the time in zone rather than to increase it. Mm. It's like I said, from how they feel. And, and then and a big part of that is just to be in dialogue with them. That's the, probably the most important monitoring form that we have because the athletes actually know. It's not always that they like to admit what they know because oh, it, was, it, was, it was okay, it was not that bad. Yeah, but if you look at the numbers, maybe you're starting to get fatigued. Yeah, but this, that, and the other. So it, it's kind of, I think the dialogue and, and how they actually feel from what we can what we can like have an English word uh, what we can expect so when we do these sessions so we do these kind of weeks or nine days or whatever we we will have an expected outcome and if mm. there's like deviation from it then we need to to look into things that can make it better or or do should we take out some load is that there, that's where I really like your from the presentation at the endurance summit with the load, the stress and the strain. Because too many people look at the load. Some people look at the stress, but too few look at the strain over time. If you're going to have an adaptation, you, you need to wait a bit to, to get the adaptation. Right. I actually had to redid that whole lecture so that I could put it on YouTube because, because it ended up behind a paywall. <laughs> so for me, it's been very clarifying once I got it in my head, this idea of, of load, stress, strain, and trying to dis- differentiate those because we do tend to, they do tend to kind of run together in the way that we talk about them. So that's helped me at least as a, both as a old fogey athlete, but also as a scientist. Now, the big goal is to help these athletes make the move, make the move to a world tour team. When do you see, I know it doesn't matter what you think, it's the world tour team that decides, but what do you see that says, okay, this athlete is ready to make the jump? Is it all results? Well, I think traditionally it's all the results, but we are now moving away from from looking at the results. But, but my take on is they are ready when they have the contract. And I can only do the things that I can help them with. So what happens down the line uh, when I'm not there or when the team is not there is, yeah, I would like to, to concentrate on the things I can do. But if I'm going to, to make an answer to your question, it's like I think when they have enough confidence to make their own calls, and to be the best that they can do every day and have high enough threshold uh, or repeatability or durability or, or whatever expression you would like to, then they are ready. Because you, you had our development guys, at least in Norwegian, in testing, and they are actually quite strong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, some of the numbers that these 18 and 19 year olds are producing are world class. Uh, any way you cut it, you know, when VO2 maxes are so, so high is what I'm seeing. So it is a mixed bag. You see certain numbers that are just phenomenal, but yet you have, you also see an athlete that is, you know, inherently they're not ready to be a world to a rider. There's a mental aspect. You've used the term robustness, but also a psychological robustness. And that's, that's interesting. It's not all the numbers. And the other thing I would ask you is, you know, because most of our listeners are not going to be making that transition to world tour, but we all are making transitions. We often are trying to make it up from the the club team to the junior national team or from the masters, you know, the elite to the the higher level masters teams on Zwift. I made the transition from category B to category A and now I'm getting my butt kicked, you know? So all of us have our transitions that we try to make and often all of us 
experience that transition is somewhat of a shock. You know, you've worked with juniors, you've worked with national team. How do you manage and help them with these transitions? The level jump, you know, you've been upgraded. I actually had this discussion with a coach in, in, in the club team that I was involved in before. That were age groupers, but they were going to go from 20 to 30K time trials. And we had a, like a, a local competition that the club held. And then they had put up, they, they kept it the 20K time trials. And then I asked, uh, why don't you have a 30K? No, but they haven't done it before. Okay, but what do you have to lose then? Oh, nothing. So, so even though, even though they haven't done it before, it would be a personal best anyway. So that's to bring the thinking into the team. It's it's about expectations. Right. So if you haven't done anything before, you will still be get the best result that you have because you have never been there before. So so I think that the main thing is mentally, and for us as a team, we should try to organize them to always or most of the time stretch themselves but not overstretch. Right. But, but sometimes when you go from, from juniors or into a continental team, then it's a big stretch. But then it's more on, yeah. the, the, on the mental side that uh, you just have to get through it, actually. Yeah, and they go from not understanding what it's like to lose very often to having to deal with loss, you know, losing pretty much every day. <laughs> so yeah. that's a tough transition. And also have the transition of being result-orientated to process-orientated. It's really boring, but if you're going to do to be the best you can, you have to, to put in the effort every day. Mm. And, then, and then you get what you have worked for. It's not that you can get the top result without working, but it's the sum of all the work that you have done before the competition that will most likely to get you the best results possible. So to think too much about the results, it would actually move you more away from the results. Well, I think that's a lesson that all of us can take home with us, even even 55-year-olds that are getting beaten on Zwift. So <laughs> I will try to keep that in mind. I know you are busy, and I know you are going to be just after the holidays traveling. So I really appreciate the time to chat. And you and I are going to be working together, I hope, for a long time to come. But I appreciate you coming on to this fast talk environment and best of luck and, and have a great holiday. Thank you for having me. Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join fast talk laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join fast talk labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash join. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join. Become a part of our education and coaching community. For Esmond Gold and Dr. Steven Seiler, thanks for listening.